Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, the flip side to frequent and robust data visualizations. There are some occasional visualizations that we're going to have that may be one off, and at a certain point we'll take them off uh, line because they may not be uh, uh, relevant or may not be current. Moving forward from the pandemic with a newfound baseline. So this year, we're still relying on that same strong foundational infrastructure that was built really early in the pandemic. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Russian-speaking hacking collective Killnet took responsibility for a denial-of-service attack that targeted several state government websites. Most of the websites affected were back online shortly after the attack, though some domains continue to route to temporary ones. Killnet has claimed responsibility for several other high-profile attacks, including ones against Norway, Lithuania, and the Eurovision Song Contest. Many states still lack concrete plans for app modernization. According to a new survey out this week from the National Association of State CIOs, nearly half of 42 state executives say the majority of their applications need modernization, yet one-third say they don't have a strategy. Idaho's IT agency has a new director. Alberto Gonzalez, the current head of the state's DMV, will take the helm of the state's Office of Information Technology Services. The CIO, Greg Zakao, will report to Gonzalez. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. The Los Angeles Controller's Office is releasing new dynamic maps and resources designed to prepare residents for emergencies. Ron Galper and the city's controller says the new maps include historical data, current information, and additional resources to help prepare people for trying events like heat waves, wildfires, earthquakes, and floods. Galperin says the maps are the latest in a string of data visualizations his office is offering to city residents. He tells State Scoop's Colin Wood about how he's using data to tackle city issues. Well, I think that there is no greater uh, challenge that is facing Los Angeles uh, and and many other uh, cities and states uh, than that of our unhoused neighbors. And uh, it has grown, unfortunately, to crisis proportions in Los Angeles, particularly. And it was my feeling that we should do everything that we can, first of all, to make sure that we're using the best information possible, that we're gathering the best data of uh, a lot of different sources in one place, uh, and providing also resources to those who are in need. And part of the problem that we have in terms of how we got here with the crisis of homelessness is that the information that we have that is used to make decisions is often not good information or adequate information. And what I've tried to do is to really bring it into one place so that we can begin to hopefully make better decisions. Mm, right. And you've been doing that. Do you do you know how many uh, sort of data hubs or data visualizations you've made? I know it's it seems like you announce one almost every week. It's maybe not that, maybe it's not that often, but it seems like it. Do you have any idea about that? Um, I've lost count, uh, but these take many different forms. Uh, we do mapping. Uh, we do uh, story maps. Uh, we do uh, charts and we do a whole variety of different ways to uh, visualize data because data in and of itself is just data. The question is, how do you make it accessible? How do you make it understandable? How do you learn lessons from it? How do you help other people to navigate it? 
Uh, how do you make it interesting and engaging to people? And that's always been a big priority for me. Yeah. How big is your team that works on these things? Huh. The better question is how small is my team <laughs> uh, in that uh, we have a very, very small handful of people who do all of this, but obviously do a really great job. And uh, you would think that in the city of Los Angeles, we would have a big staff and a lot of uh, budget uh, in order to uh, do these kind of visualizations and to gather this data. But in fact, it, you can count uh, the people who work on this uh, on the fingers uh, of basically one hand. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, they must be must be busy. I thought it might be interesting to uh, you could take a specific project that you have in mind or just we could talk about it generally but could you sort of run down the process and the and the tools and what how do you take uh an idea and turn it into one of these uh visualizations well there's no lack of ideas out there and we gather ideas uh from the public uh from uh other decision makers in city hall from our staff from uh, seeing what is happening in uh, in other cities and counties and states, uh, from basically looking at the news and seeing what is uh, important uh, at any given moment in time, and also looking at the bigger picture in terms of uh, the issues that may not be in the news but really need a lot of attention, things like emergency preparedness or uh, other other things that don't make the news every day, but are absolutely uh, crucial. And uh, we begin by looking at what are some of the data sources that are out there. Uh, we begin by looking at what are the problems that we see? What are the challenges? Uh, what are some of the information sources that might help us better understand uh, a situation, better understand how to address it? And uh, with that, we also partner with a variety of different departments uh, in the city that also gather information. Uh, we uh, look at what we have in our own uh, uh, data that might be useful. We talk to a variety of other stakeholders often that may have different uh, data sets that can be helpful. Uh, we uh, try to collaborate with the county uh, in some cases and, and other governmental jurisdictions. And then uh, based on all that, we look at what we've got and what are some ways to uh, visualize that data, but not, not just for the purpose of making it look good, but it, to really help people understand things in a way that perhaps they didn't understand them before. Right. And uh, do you have any sort of favorite stories or anecdotes of, of uh, the impact of these? Well, the impact is very broad in a whole variety of ways. Some of the uh, efforts that we've had uh, over the course just of the uh, last year is we do mapping, for example, of all of the uh, projects that are being uh, built uh, for the purposes of uh, both uh, interim and permanent supportive housing. Uh, this is crucial uh, and followed by so many uh, within our city uh, to make sure that uh, the city is doing everything that it can uh, to move these projects along that are so desperately needed. Um, I've mapped every single one of the properties that are owned by every government entity within the city and within the county. Uh, 
uh, that are owned by the city and by the federal government and by the state and by other governmental entities so that we can look at how do we leverage them. And there's a whole variety of stakeholders that look at that on a regular basis. Um, we did mapping uh, during uh, COVID of every single one of the uh, food banks and food pantries uh, within the whole state of California. It became the number one visited uh, feature of our website, which tells us an awful lot about the level of food insecurity that we have in our state and, and in our city. Uh, we have done mapping of a whole variety of other uh, resources, uh, LGBTQ youth resources. Uh, we did a, uh, uh, a, uh, a mapping uh, and created an equity index, uh, which is now going to be even further expanded, looking at each of our neighborhoods and what are the challenges uh, understanding neighborhood by neighborhood, uh, what are poverty levels, what are education levels, what are proximity to toxics, um, and uh, and so much more that uh, really reveals the levels of inequity that need to be addressed, and uh, and of course uh, this uh, homelessness hub that we created, which is is really meant to be there for a whole variety of different folks. It's there, as I mentioned, for the dis other decision makers. It's there for interested members of the public. It's there also for people who are either experiencing homelessness or uh, are uh, right at the cusp of it and uh, need to know what resources are available for them. Oh, and today we also are uh, issuing a uh, revised version of a uh, map that we've done previously for emergency preparedness. And it includes a whole variety of different uh, places that people can go uh, in the case of an emergency. And uh, we look at uh, a whole variety of different um, uh, ways in which people can be better prepared for an emergency. And some of that we also map. In LA, would an emergency be, it could be anything, earthquake, uh someone with an assault oh rifle. well there's there's a whole <laughs> panoply of uh, emergencies that can happen uh they uh, include uh earthquakes of course but there are fires uh there's flooding uh there is also uh terrible heat waves that can claim lives of people uh especially with climate change and uh it's important that people know where are their cooling centers for example uh so there's a, a lot of different ways in which, you know, unfortunately, we need to be uh, prepared. As someone who's uh, helped create a data visualization myself, I came up with Datascoop's ransomware map. After it was finished, I, you know, I didn't actually do the software development, but I helped uh, create it. And after it was finished, I soon learned that I'd created a, pr uh, a prison for myself of, of uh, or kind of a labor camp, really, where I would. I now have to maintain this data for the rest of my life, so that the uh, mm -hmm. so that the map has any um, continues to have any value. How do you how do you guys try to manage that aspect of things? Do you have to continue maintaining these things? Do you try to set it up so that you have sort of uh, it's dynamically updated? How do you how do you manage that? Well, ideally, uh, we like as many of the sources that we use to be dynamically updated, but of course, that's not necessarily the case. And so, what we seek to do when we put out uh, any kind of visualization is really to have a set of protocols 
about uh, what we reasonably expect is our ability to update it at any given uh, period. So there's some things that are going to be updated on a monthly basis, some on a quarterly basis, some on an annual basis, and we seek to keep track of that. There are some occasional visualizations that we're going to have that may be one off, and at a certain point we'll take them off uh, line because they may not be uh, uh, relevant or may not be current, but uh, we try to keep as many of these as current as we possibly can. Does the and you mentioned earlier that uh, you know you work with various city entities and other I don't know if you work with other kind of regional entities, but to uh, to gather the data, do you find that generally the data that you need is available, or do you do you often run into the problem of it either not existing or just being so poorly collected and cleaned that it's unusable? Well, there will be never enough uh, data. Uh, to uh, satisfy uh, my curiosity for it. Uh, And uh, it's always a challenge, um, especially if we don't uh, have uh, possession, uh, as it were, of that data. We also have protocols to really uh, vet it and uh, and to scrub it and to clean it, to make sure that it's uh, accurate, that there aren't anomalies there. Uh, There's been some controversy recently about data that has been gathered not by our office, but by uh, the uh, Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority uh, when it comes to uh, our homeless count. And it's it's crucial that whoever is gathering this data is doing so in an accurate way, uh, but also to make sure that the information that we're gathering is going to be actually useful and, and tell us uh, the information that we need. You take the issue of homelessness, for example, and everybody has talked about data and information, uh, truth be told, for a very, very long time. But uh, nobody can, at this point, still really accurately say uh, exactly how long people will stay in uh, housing and particularly permanent supportive housing and, and what the factors are for people who are not staying in it. Uh, also information about how much of this is because they may have been evicted, how much of it may be because of um, mental illness or drug addiction. There are a lot of numbers out there, but uh, they're not always that terribly accurate. And sometimes they're not that accurate because they're self-reported and sometimes because they're not perhaps being gathered by as many different uh, sources as it would be good for that to be the case. Mm. Is there uh, is there anything in your background, either personally or professionally, that that sort of led you to uh, have this great interest in this, or is it is it just a sort of result of your curiosity? And this is where this is where the answers lie. Well, uh, I remember when I got elected to uh, become city controller in Los Angeles. Uh, my mother, may she now rest in peace, uh, quipped and. Uh, I, I'm the first in my family to be born in this country. And she quipped, finally, a title to go with your personality. Uh, <laughs> but there was a little bit of, of truth to that, perhaps. But uh, I, I have a, a, a great deal of interest in uh, good public policy and in using the resources that we have in a way that does the most amount of good. And I really still strongly believe, despite all the problems with government and all the inefficiencies and all the bureaucracy, that we have the potential to do a a tremendous amount of good for people. 
uh, and uh, to create a better present and a better future. But I think the only way that you do that is if you are willing to be honest in looking at yourself in the mirror and see what is working and what is not working. Uh, and if you're willing to uh, really uh, take the information that is available and use that to make uh, better decisions. And so uh, that's been from the very first day, my priority as a city controller. And I'm very lucky that I have uh, a staff of people who are equally dedicated and very bright and really interested in doing everything that they can to uh, create a better future. Because this is not just about uh, being an office of, you know, counting the money. Uh, it's about looking at how it's being spent and what we're getting for it. Ron Galperin, controller of the city of Los Angeles. You can read more about him and his data dashboards at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of Statescoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, NASIO Executive Director Doug Robinson and Deloitte Srini Sobermanian dive into the results of the 2022 NASIO Deloitte Cybersecurity Survey. You can subscribe to the podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services created a data-sharing partnership during the pandemic to help get food and benefits to students and families who needed it. That data-sharing partnership is up for one of NASIO's annual state IT recognition awards. The winners for those will be announced next week. Carla West, Senior Director of Human Services at the department, tells State Soup's Colin Wood how the project got started. Colin, you might remember that back in March of 2020, the world kind of shut down due to the pandemic. And that same effect happened with schools um, all across the nation and definitely here in uh, North Carolina, seeing that there were children who were reliant on having free lunch and free breakfast at uh, schools, USDA uh, issued uh, funding for this pandemic electronic um, benefits uh, so that children who are no longer receiving that same access to free or reduced price meals at school um, would still have daily access to meals. You know, in addition, there were working parents of many of these students who were unable to work or had significantly reduced hours. So USDA responded by providing a framework for states to establish a pandemic EBT food assistance program. And they provided a basic blueprint for this, but it was upon the states to come up with a plan that worked best for them. So as long as it was within acceptable parameters, many of which were being established and documented along the way, um, we were able to establish this program. So it was an uncertain time for everyone, and it was no different with regards to establishing new programs and ways to help people. So we built a system that leveraged school data um, from our partners at our Department of Public Instruction. And then we used the DHHS vehicle um, through our Food and Nutrition Services Program to uh, leverage that data to help these families and these children. So Rob here with us was really instrumental in getting this set up. You know, just to finish up the response to this question, what was the challenge that that, uh, that prompted the creation of the project? You know, we when we saw that we really needed to get something set up quickly, we decided the best avenue was to leverage our existing uh, food nutrition services uh, software array 
and, and application portfolio to issue these benefits and get them out quickly. But we also had the benefit of the fact that most schools in North Carolina, most public schools and charter schools utilize a system called PowerSchool uh, that collects uh, a lot of different data. And, uh, and so we r- really rapidly got uh, all the data sharing agreements in place we needed uh, and began re- getting data from PowerSchool uh, that also indicated whether children were free or reduced lunch eligible. Uh, and and began issuing benefits. So uh, one of the reasons we were one of the early adopters was because our team at all levels of the organization, both uh, with DHHS and with Department of Public Instruction, were really committed to helping families. And uh, that energy resulted in a lot of overtime uh, and a lot of work on top of existing responsibilities. But it was all with the goal of, uh, you know, of making sure that these families who were in this predicament had the ability to get food on the table uh, and uh, and for these lost meals. So we brought together over 20 different teams collaborating across two state agencies. Uh, in addition, we had a number of other partners who've been critical to the success of the program, uh, involved everyone from teachers and local education authorities to uh, you know, communications uh, st- and, and staff across both DPI and DHHS. So it was a huge, huge uh, endeavor of collaboration. Right. So, I'd, yeah, I'd like to go a little bit more into what it took organizationally and technically to get this up and running. But first, if we could kind of flash forward to today, what is the now that, you know, I know nothing is ever finished, but now that it's, you know, quote unquote, finished and operational, what does the what does the program look like? And what are your what are your current capabilities? So, Colin, um, while we have built a really strong foundation that we're really um, glad that we can leverage, we have found every year the rules for how to implement PEBT have been slightly different. Um, and this is as the pandemic has evolved and based on changes in what's happening in schools at how they've been operating in terms of in-person and virtual learning. You know, we, we saw as the pandemic had various surges and different variants over the course of these past uh, two and a half years that has impacted PEBT. Um, so this year, we're still relying on that same strong foundational infrastructure that was built really early in the pandemic, the infrastructure of data sharing agreements, um, the data sharing process with our partners at our um, public instruction agency, underlying technology and processes. But as new federal requirements are released, as they were for this coming school year, we do have to make adjustments and changes. Um, And we also have to plan ahead to account for the fact that there could be um, outliers and edge cases and data cleanup. So um, where we are as of this moment is that USDA um, has announced that they'll be implementing PEBT for the coming school year, there are some new requirements and our team is actively working on analyzing what are these new requirements? How are we going to develop processes to to meet the uh, needs of PEBT this year? So um, it has taken um, really a very cross-sector diverse team to be nimble in the face of not only what is changing in the federal requirement landscape, but also what just happens to change with the way that our um, kids are are 
experiencing school, um, which um, ha- has been a, a journey um, over these past few years. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a good uh, segue into talking about some of the challenges and things you guys were thinking about, at, both as you originally were launching this and as you continue to develop it. it sounds like, as Rob described, you had this the advantage of having uh, a lot of people on a similar platform. What were some of the, uh, so if whoever wants to best to take this, what were some of the big challenges that you in the past and even today continue to face? So as with most of the COVID-19 response efforts, uh, the PEBT program uh, created a bit of an unprecedented process that neither DHHS or our partners at Department of Public Instruction or really the local school system had ever encountered before. So unlike traditional public assistance programs like SNAP, uh, PEBT relies on existing system data and data matching rather than an application process, as we kind of alluded to before. So we, after we had the appropriate data sharing agreements in place, we had to get data from the PowerSchool system, from DPI, as well as data relating to free or reduced lunch eligibility. Uh, School enrollment data was used, attendance information was used, indicating whether uh, students were in virtual learning or in-person learning. And and as Madhu said, those requirements changed each year that we did PEBT and how we use that attendance data was slightly different in each uh, iteration of PEBT, which was a challenge in and of itself because the, it was a, you know constantly shifting each year towards uh, kind of different rules and different guidelines and processes. So when DHHS receives the data from DPI, we take that data and we process uh, benefit rules and also match that data to our existing uh, SNAP data. And the reason we do that data matching is so that if a student is already a member of an existing SNAP case, we wanna go ahead and issue those PBT benefits onto their household's existing EBT card. Uh, Cause this is more, I mean, it's more convenient for the household that way, but it's also less costly in terms of how many new EBT cards we need to be printed, which was also a, a challenge in and of itself because there were supply chain shortages on being able to, to uh, actually print the number of new cards that were needing to be printed for PEBT across the across the nation, uh, and a lot of the vendors, you know, work uh, the EBT vendors work across multiple states. Um, and and the additional benefit of what we the way we were doing it and leveraging our existing uh, technology is we were able to leverage existing privacy and security protections and protocols. Uh, you know, people are rightfully cautious about how their information is being leveraged, and we wanted to ensure the utmost protections of that data uh, so we could properly administer the program. Um, but to the original question, the challenges that we face, I think one of the most notable ones is, is just the troubleshooting uh, that we had to do. So because we're leveraging data from systems that were not built for this purpose. And for example, PowerSchool was not meant to have its data used for the administration of a public assistance program. Uh, When it was set up, it was set up for school purposes and for tracking attendance. Um, So teachers, in addition to all the other stuff they were already having to go through and do with virtual learning, also had the additional uh, task of making sure that attendance was correct because the, the consequence of that attendance not being correct 
uh, and not indicating whether a, a child was virtual or in this last PBT cycle, whether that child was absent due to a COVID-related uh, reason versus a non-COVID-related reason, it mattered to whether or not the, the students would receive accurate PBT benefits. So the, the challenge, I think uh, the biggest challenge was when there were problems how do we, you know, where was, where's the root cause and how do we identify uh, where, if there's a data issue, is it at the school level? Um, what needs to be done? Who needs to be involved to troubleshoot? So that was a, a, a challenge and involved a lot of different players, both at the low, from everywhere from the local schools to, uh, to folks that working on our technology team uh, with PEBT so we could verify whether there was an issue or not with the data. So um, even then, you know, we really didn't want data issues to get in, a, in the way of an eligible family receiving benefits. So we had to come up with processes to troubleshoot and to triage issues for every uh you know, student and family across the state that might be running into an issue or at least having questions about uh, PEBT. Mm. Carla or Madhu, did you have anything to add on the challenges front? Yeah, yeah. So another really big challenge that we had with PEBT was our communications. You know, this is a new program um, and, and families were really struggling financially to feed their families and making sure that they understood the eligibility requirements and how we were using uh, data to um, issue the benefits was a really important piece of this. You know, not only just to families, but we had to make sure teachers and school systems understood um, connections to like the grocery stores and things like that, making sure they were aware. Um, uh, our other partnering agencies like 211. So we really worked hard to build a communication structure to answer the questions that they were have because it's all all new program and unlike traditional public assistance benefits programs, we were relying on existing system data and data matching rather than somebody just applying for services. So there were a lot of considerations on how we communicated why certain students would receive one benefit level. For example, maybe they were a hybrid student versus a 100% virtual student. Um, and so it was really confusing as to, well, why is my child receiving this amount and this other child is receiving another amount? Different schools might be receiving different amounts when, you know, in year two, when we got to um, having to count the number of students who are absent because of a COVID related um, absence, you know, that students would get different amounts based on the number of days they were out. It was constantly changing and making sure that parents understood was a really important um, challenge that we had to overcome. So we had our EBT call center. Um, we had made sure our communications to our local schools, our Department of Public Instruction staff, we were all on front lines answering calls and questions and explaining how the process worked and helping families understand what was happening. It was an overwhelming process, I'll be honest with you, and as Rob mentioned, lots of overtime and hours, but because communication turned out to be such a critical piece of ensuring that households received the funds, we took a next step and we developed a virtual agent 
or a chat bot um, in both English and in Spanish um, so that families could access that 24 hours a day, seven days a week on our website to answer the most commonly asked questions. Uh, honestly, I believe that was a huge success um, for North Carolina in ensuring that we were communicating early and often and as clearly as possible. Um, so a challenge that was, um, I think, met pretty well. Hmm. So from the information I have, it looks like you guys have gotten some pretty nice feedback from people. What would you say the overall impact of the program has been? So just by the numbers, um, in North Carolina, the PEBT program has served over 1.5 million students and young children. And we recently hit a milestone of issuing more than $2 billion, in fact, $2.2 billion to be exact, um, since the program launched in May of 2020. So not only have PEBT benefits helped so many families with, with children put food on the table during such a challenging time when school meals were not consistently access, accessible um, and when families needed additional support because of the economic hardship of the pandemic. Um, but this program on top of that has injected billions of dollars into North Carolina's local economy. It supports grocers and retailers, farmers, and many other important parts of our food and agricultural industry, um, which we know has also been hit really hard during this pandemic. So it's such an important benefit, not only to our families, but to that, um, the critical folks in our supply chain who make our food available. Um, and then another big success um, metric that we have um, seen with our PBT program is that there's been more than 92% of the benefits that have been issued have actually been spent, which really shows and demonstrates that PEBT was effective at meeting families' needs for food assistance because the vast majority of families use their benefits. And it just shows the impact of the communications and outreach efforts that Carla mentioned, which we could not have done without the help of so many different partners across the state um, who supported PEBT. So I think that those numbers kind of speak for themselves to, to show the impact that this program has had on the lives of children and their families um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we, uh, early in the call, we kind of touched on this uh, in terms of what's, what's next for the program, but there may be more there. So what's, what's next? What's ahead for, for this program? Sure. So some of the new requirements um, that USDA has released that our team is currently working through are around thinking about how we ensure that um, families whose children um, have opted to um, go into homeschooling or through virtual schools because of COVID um, are able to also benefit from the PEBT program. So that's a big part of what our team is currently looking at. How will we develop processes to implement that um, additional population um, in, in, in addition to leveraging the existing infrastructure for the regular school year. Um, and I think this is probably a good segue just to reflect on some lessons learned. Um, I'll touch on a few and then want to kick it over to Rob to, to share more on the technology side. But just PBT is an amazing example of um, 
a type of pandemic response effort that has built a really strong institutional muscle memory um, that we believe it will have lasting benefits um, for our department, um, our work with our partners ongoing, um, like the Department of Public Instruction, as well as um, many others, as we continue to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it, it shows um, what is possible um, for, for, for government benefit programs and services to really effectively meet the needs of the people they serve. Um, so I think this just provides such a great blueprint for future efforts, especially those that are cross-sector, using data across different um, entities and sources and how it can be leveraged for such a positive um, impact. So in addition, you know, we now have a documented game plan that will help us activate this or a similar program if, if something like COVID-19 or a new pandemic arises in the future, which of course we, we hope doesn't happen. Um, but if it does, I think we'll leave North Carolina ready, even if the same staff are, aren't there. When, when that happens, if it does happen, there will be a game plan and, and a blueprint in place. Um, I would also say that our experience with PEBT, along with other COVID response efforts, has, has changed the way we invest dollars in technology going forward and how we manage those systems. And I really can't, understa you know, can't uh, understate how much our experience has stressed the importance of government staying on top of IT modernization and ensuring that it has flexible, modular, and interoperable capabilities available uh, because, you know, changing monolithic technology systems to do something on the fly very quickly when, when benefits and when help is needed uh, in the, out there quickly uh, can only really be done uh, well and, uh, and with integrity if, if we're really staying on top of our modernization efforts. Um, that means, you know, heavier reliance on low-code, no-code technology when possible, uh, modernizing our data infrastructure, becoming more modular, uh, and, and having better and transparent, uh, more transparent data governance and data sharing processes. So I think those are some of the big lessons learned and some of the things I think that we are better off now than we were before. I know there's a lot of, you would never want anything like that to happen in the future, but I think that, you know, some of the silver lining there is that we are better prepared for, uh, for similar or worse uh, things that might happen in the future. Rob Morrill, Director of Human Services, Business Information and Analytics at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, along with department leaders Madhu Volameri and Carla West. You can read more about them and North Carolina's data partnership efforts at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also read more about all of the projects for NASIO State IT Recognition Awards there too. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.